1: at sax.com hi this is amanda and you're listening to the art of history podcast hi everybody welcome back feels like it's been forever, but that's, you know, totally on me. I'm Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history and an accidental social media presence. So here we all are. (laughs) This episode is going to be a bit different than usual. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most famous works in art history, Sandro Botticelli's Primavera. I didn't really want to do a deep dive on the Medici family, however, who it was commissioned for, or on renaissance florence at this moment in time i i just i don't know i just wasn't feeling it What I found myself doing instead was, I was sort of going a bit Da Vinci Code on this painting, trying to puzzle out the meaning anew. This is one that I wrote a paper on in my undergrad, and I just found myself getting sucked back into it while I was writing this episode. Spoiler alert, nobody has ever agreed on what is going on in this painting, what it all means, what is a symbol, what isn't, or even to a certain extent, who is who. So while normally on this podcast, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past, this week I'm going to take us on a tour of one artwork. If you're someone who likes to listen while driving or while you work, I would recommend pausing until you can take a look at the painting to refresh your memory of what I will be blabbering about for the next however long, Uh, or at least ensure that you have a good mental image of the painting before you go any further. I will still guide us through a close look at the painting together, but some of this will just make more sense if you have it in front of you. I know, it's the limitations of doing an art history podcast in an audio format, I get it. As always, I will be posting this week's artwork over on Instagram, at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow, it will only save you time for future episodes. There will also be some detail views and some supplemental images over there, so definitely check it out whenever you get the chance. But without further ado, we're going to dive right in and do some background before we look at our painting. There's not much we know for sure about the Primavera, but one thing we can be sure of is who painted it. That would be one Sandro Botticelli. This is coming from London's National Gallery. Botticelli was the son of a tanner. He was actually born Alessandro Di Mariano Filippi. Filippi? Filippi? Alessandro Di Mariano Filipepe, I'm thinking. But he was given the nickname Botticelli, derived from the word Botticello, meaning a small wine cask. Oh, the money I would pay to know for sure how that nickname came about. It's thought that Botticelli first trained with a goldsmith before entering the studio of the artist Fra Filippo Lippi, who, if you know your art history, he was the first Western artist to use foreshortening in a fresco to make it look as though the figures were actually receding back into space. It was these little flying angels, and it was quite revolutionary for the time, believe it or not. Botticelli began his own career painting frescoes for Florentine churches and cathedrals, and by 1470, he had his own workshop. His old boss, Fra Filippo Lippi, had some excellent contacts around Italy, including the patronage of some of the leading families in Florence, like the Medici. Botticelli, in turn, spent almost all of his life working for the Medici family and their circle of friends, for whom he painted some of his most ambitious secular paintings, such as the Primavera. In 1481, he was summoned by the Pope to Rome to help decorate the walls of the recently completed Sistine Chapel. A year later, he returned to Florence, and the period from 1478 to 1490 saw him at his most creative. This was the period during which he produced his most famous mythological works, such as The Birth of Venus. Botticelli painted the Primavera sometime back between 1477 and 1482, probably for the marriage of Lorenzo di Pierfrancesco de Medici, cousin of the powerful Italian statesman and important patron of the arts, Lorenzo Medici. If you know anything about the Medici family, this is probably the one that you know. He was aka Il Magnifico. So, so much we could say about that dude, but for now just know that he was the de facto head of government in Florence, and one of the most powerful men of all Quattrocento Italy. That is a fancy word for the 15th century. (laughs) Il Magnifico was tasked with overseeing the education of his young relative Lorenzo de Pierfrancesco de Medici, who therefore picked up some pretty liberal views through his education under some of Florence's most esteemed tutors. Lorenzo went on to become a poet and an art connoisseur in his own right. And in 1482, Il Magnifico arranged Lorenzo's marriage to Samira Mide Appiano, whose family was well-connected to money and political power, always useful for arranging a marriage with a Medici. It is thought that Il Magnifico commissioned Botticelli to paint either one or two works to celebrate the marriage. The one we're most sure of, although there's no documentation to back this up, was the Primavera. The other may have been Botticelli's Palace and the Centaur. The original title of the Primavera is unknown. It was first called La Primavera, or Spring, by the artist-slash-art historian Giorgio Vasari, but he only saw it some 70 years after it was originally painted. Just amazing to think that, like, centuries of art historical analysis could have been circumvented if we just knew the original name of the painting. (laughs) Vasari, the one who wrote about it, was a well-known 16th century artist in his own right, but he's probably best known to history, and anyone who has ever taken survey of Western art, as the author of Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, a series of artist biographies that formed the basis for modern art history. I will also note here, just to wrap up our artist biography, that Vasari also suggests that as his work fell out of favor, Botticelli became melancholic and depressed. He never married, preferring the company of family and friends, and was always known for his high spirits and quick wit. So it's pretty depressing to think of his final years as a rapid decline into poverty, isolation, and mental anguish. After his death, Botticelli's name all but disappeared until the late 19th century when a developing appreciation for Florentine arts and culture brought about a renewed interest in his work. So that's largely why this painting has become so iconic. So that's a melancholic place to begin looking at a very enigmatic painting. Vasari laid eyes on the primavera in 1550 at, quote, Castello, the villa of Duke Cosimo of Florence, where it was one of two figural paintings, quote, the one of Venus who is born and is with the breezes and winds that carry her to land with the loves, and likewise another Venus whom the graces beflower, denoting the springtime. In both of these, he expressed himself with grace." Vasari could be a little a little wordy, it is true. But if you can't tell from that description, Vasari saw the primavera displayed alongside the birth of Venus. For a long time, the two were actually supposed to be a pair. But we are now 99% sure that they were not. In fact, Lorenzo de Pierfrancesco is now believed to have commissioned the birth of Venus much later in his own life. Other evidence to support them not being a pair is that the Primavera was painted on wood while the Birth of Venus was painted on canvas. And as we'll see, there are departures in the deeper meaning of each painting, which I think means they were definitely not meant to coexist for the viewer. Today, the Uffizi Gallery in Florence houses both works. Of the Primavera, they write, it is painted on a poplar wood backing and towards the end of the 15th century, it was to be found in the house in Via Larga, modern day Via Cavour, that belonged to the heirs of Lorenzo de Pier Francesco de Medici, cousin of Lorenzo il Magnifico. It was hung above a latuccio, a kind of chest with a back that was often among the furniture items in noble Renaissance homes. It was later moved to the Villa di Castello. I apologize also in advance for my Italian pronunciation in this episode. I took French, so. An earlier inventory from a 1499 account of the household of Lorenzo de Pierre Francesco, the painting is described just as, quote, a panel of wood attached over a Latuccio in which is painted nine figures of men and women, estimated at 100 lira. We now know that in the setting for which the painting was designed, the bottom was about at eye level or just slightly above it, partly explaining the, quote, gently rising plane on which the figures stand. So if you really want to get a 1400s view of this piece, I suppose you should hold your device about eye level and look up at it. Let's do our close look of the painting now, but just know we will be revisiting certain portions of the canvas over the course of the episode to go into even more detail. So as that very vague account from 1499 says, the painting shows nine figures actually from classical mythology. Six female, two male, and one cupid. They are grouped together in an orange grove. That orange grove is typically taken by scholars as one of the indications that the painting was not only owned by the Medici, but that it was commissioned by them as well. The orange trees are considered an emblem of the Medici dynasty because of the resonance between the family name and the name of the orange tree, which at the time was Malla Medica. According to the Uffizi Gallery, the dark color of the vegetation that we see today is in part due to the aging process of the original pigment but it was intentionally contrasted with the abundance of fruits and flowers and that peeking through of the blue sky. There are about 500 plant species depicted in the painting with about 190 of them being different kinds of flowers. At least 138 of the different plant species have been specifically identified. They were all accurately portrayed by Botticelli, indicating that he perhaps used an herbarium as a reference. The attention to detail confirms just how committed he was to rendering this piece accurately. Notably, no story from classical history has been identified that brings this particular group of figures together. The scene is usually thought of as an allegory or a story, poem or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Usually that's a moral or a political one. More on this later. There are, of course, lots of ways to read this painting. Some people discuss it from left to right. But since the narrative here does seem to be centered on the female figure standing in the middle of the painting, we'll start with her. We generally refer to this figure as Venus, the Roman goddess of love and beauty. Although, of course, her precise identity will actually form a lot of the discussion coming up later in the episode. We know she's important for a very simple reason. Placed just right of the center of the canvas, her feet are higher than her companions in the scene, showing us that she is standing behind them. However, she is also depicted at the same scale as the other figures, when she should really be smaller than them if she was behind them. She might even be slightly larger than the other figures. Either way, this is typically seen as indicating her importance. She wears a pale blue dress with a red wrap draped over her right shoulder. She lifts her right hand in almost a gesture of benediction or blessing, her eyes gaze out the canvas at us, her hair is golden and secured underneath a very, very sheer veil. Everybody in this painting wears clothing that is described as, quote, a version of the dress of contemporary Florence a sort of quasi-theatrical costume designed for a masquerade of the sort that Vasari wrote were invented by Il Magnifico for civic festivals and tournaments. As we will shortly see, this might be a clue to the painting's purpose. Thinking of the Primavera as an allegorical tableau or a theatrical scene gets rid of any requirement for a strict meaning to emerge. The dark leaves of the trees, identified as a laurel bush silhouetted behind this central figure, form a type of arch. It's kind of broken up, but it draws the eye. Laurel, or lauro in Italian, would have been a clever homophone to connect the painting to its owner, Lorenzo. To Venus's right, our left, are the Three Graces, who clasp hands and dance in a circle. One scholar has identified these women uh, from left to right as pleasure, chastity, and beauty. They wear pearls in their heads, a sign of their chastity and purity that is somewhat at odds with their very sheer, barely there clothing. Directly above Venus, a cupid with his eyes covered by a delicate blindfold aims his arrow at the figure in the center of the grouping, identified as chastity. While her two companions look across their small circle at one another, Chastity is looking farther to the left of the canvas, towards a male figure. Mercury is the Roman counterpart of the Greek god Hermes, the messenger god. In his Roman mythology, Mercury is the god of commerce, communication, travel, as well as the patron of thieves, messengers, and merchants. The fact that Chastity is looking over to him just as a Cupid aims his arrow at her perhaps indicates the effect that love will soon have on Chastity. For his part, Mercury reaches into the air at the left-hand edge of the painting. He is clothed in red with a sword and a helmet and raises his caduceus, that wooden rod that doctors use as their symbol with the two snakes and the wings. (laughs) He raises that towards some wispy gray clouds just at the edge of the canvas. He is literally about to push away the gray clouds of winter. We can look at him as the guard of the garden, wearing a quasi-military outfit and facing away from his companions. He's kind of like the lookout. To Venus's left, so on the other side of the canvas, on our right, is another tableau entirely, containing the wind god Zephyrus, the west wind and the bringer of spring breezes, as well as the nymph Chloris, who he has apparently just seized. Chloris is frantically lunging away from him, but to no avail. It's thought that Chloris is visually intertwined with the woman next to her. She is Flora, the Roman goddess of spring. This is an attempt on the artist's part, we think to imply that the two figures are actually one and the same. In ancient mythology, Chloris, a nymph, is transformed into a deity after succumbing to Zephyrus's advances, which can really be read as rape. She married him and bore his child. Her divinity, a reward for submitting to her husband, is implied by immaculate serenity and her composed stature. In the painting, flowers and leaves grow out of Chloris's mouth and get lost amidst the flowers and vines that are used to adorn flora, further carrying the metaphor that the west wind will herald the new growth of spring, which then bears fruit. Together these two female figures, Chloris, sometimes called Nimble Spring, and Flora called Bountiful Spring, are meant to be read as an allegorical manifestation of fertility. Draped in flowers and vines, Flora does indeed have an air of the bountiful about her. As she scatters petals at Venus's feet, we can't really help but also connect her presence to the other goddess's dignified setting and pose. Also like Venus, flora is returning our gaze out of the canvas. Now I just threw a whole bunch of symbols at you, but hopefully you do get the sense that Botticelli is trying to show us a scene set in spring. But even as the tableau apparently depicts a mythological representation of springtime, there are no elements of fauna to complement the flora. No birds in the foliage or tiny scurrying animals at the figure's feet. Not even really any insects. It's actually a strangely still suspended, almost melancholic scene. Most critics agree that the painting is indeed an allegory based on the lush growth of spring, but accounts of any precise meaning vary from source to source. Many explanations involve the Renaissance Neoplatonism, which then fascinated intellectual circles in Florence. This was the idea that there was one single supreme source of goodness and life in the universe, from which all other things descended. Every subsequent iteration or depiction becomes less perfect than the real thing because the world which we experience is only a copy of the ideal reality that lies beyond this mortal coil, this material world. Botticelli was probably also drawing on multiple literary sources in creating the Primavera. I'm not really well-versed on these, but they include that of Ovid and Lucretius. These all came together in his composition of the Primavera to create a new type of courtly art, what's been called visual poetry. As art historian Webster Smith contended, quote, perhaps everyone in the literary circle around Lorenzo was expected to discover or invent narrative, poetical, and symbolical affiliations to accompany the Primavera. Botticelli may well have been asked by the Medici to paint a composition that included various allegorical and iconographic schemes so that the powerful learned family and those they entertained could demonstrate their intellect by ascribing different interpretations. So like how we would go see a movie with our friends and then talk about what it means at the end. Like when you watched Inception for the first time and got in fights with your friends over whether or not that top was gonna spin and fall over. From the Uffizi Gallery, quote, Although the complex meaning of the composition remains a mystery, the painting is a celebration of love, peace, and prosperity. We can pretty reasonably assume that it's an elaborate mythological allegory of, quote, the burgeoning fertility of the world. If you want to hone in more on the specific audience for the painting, the people who would have seen it every day, it can also be viewed as a marriage allegory. Most historians and authors conclude that the Primavera was, and I'm going to butcher this, an epithalamium, a visual poem in honor of the bride and groom. The newlyweds in this case, remember, were Lorenzo de Francesco de' Medici and Samira Mide d'Appiano. <laughs> However, a scholar by the name of Lillian Zerpolo takes this concept even further, arguing that the painting operated within a larger decorative program in the house to serve as a model of behavior for the bride. It would have supplied her with lessons on chastity, submission, and procreation. The three graces, white and virginal, work as models of purity and chastity, but the cupid points his arrow at the one that represents chastity, who looks over towards Mercury. Perhaps this suggests her imminent conveyance to the marital bed. The rape of Chloris, the nymph, as well, suggests the loss of virginal virtue on behalf of the wife, but she is immediately restored to quote-unquote her honor by the grace of her husband, who makes her goddess of spring. This loss of innocence would, with any luck, culminate in the production of a reward. Children. If reading the work as a marriage gift, Mercury may have represented Lorenzo de Pierfrancesco himself, with Samira represented by the central grace or flora. There's a chance that these were actually portraits of the newlyweds, although we have no way to know for sure. Some have looked outside Lorenzo de Pierfrancesco's household for inspiration, going so far as to match the likenesses of Botticelli's female figures to those of Il Magnifico's love objects, namely Simonetta Cataneo de' Vespucci and Lucrezia Donati. Simonetta is also credited with being the muse behind the, ver- the, ver- the birth of Venus. <laughs> Lorenzo referred to these two women obsessively within his poetry, and one historian believes that the inclusion of their likenesses in the Primavera could have been a stand-in for this idea of love as it existed in Florentine literature. Since they were so well known and talked about already, viewers would automatically know the messages they were supposed to be taking away from their inclusion in the painting. I'm going to take a short break here. It might actually be tomorrow that I pick up recording again, but don't worry, you'll get the whole episode at the same time. When we come back, we will dive a little bit deeper into Botticelli's figures of women in general and some lingering questions about the central figure in The Primavera.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Okay, and we're back. It is indeed the next day for me. But hopefully to you, the listener, it has only been about 30 seconds. (laughs) Just sitting down again to record and pulling up the images for this episode anew, I was struck just by how weird Botticelli's figures do appear to a modern eye. I think it's pretty well accepted that they don't look like a lot of other figures in art history even, especially the women. So we're going to pick back up with a note on Botticelli's women. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a lot of the raw material for this episode came from a paper I wrote in undergrad called Botticelli's Women as Complex Manifestations of Love. I think this was for my Italian Renaissance art class, which was, if I'm remembering correctly, right after lunch. And all of our art history classes were theater style, so there were rows of like very cushy chairs. I do remember sleeping for a lot of that class, um, but by the time we got to the late 1400s, it was more interesting. So <laughs> this is what I chose to write my term paper on. So. It is largely correct to view Botticelli's female figures as representations of Florentine beauty standards. Botticelli often included real women's likenesses that would be familiar to Florentines to help them uh, see them as, quote, real objects of love, meant to bolster the abstract ideas of love that he was using in this visual poetry. He would also use them to stand in for the types of figures that people were used to seeing. So the goddess, the Virgin Mary, he would use these real women as stand-ins to help connect the viewer to the message he was trying to get across. They were meant to call to mind the era's greatest beauties, but their physical attributes speak to their significance not only on an aesthetic level, but also on a moral and philosophical one. Every single female figure in the Primavera, for example, shares the same wavy blonde hair, and they have these weird, similar face shapes. This was also on purpose, not just because his models all happened to share the same features, but because there was a reason that those features were so highly prized by the Florentines. 15th and 16th century writers expended considerable effort in their quest to promote a single ideal form to which women could aspire. By way of example, I have a passage from 1541. I'm not going to be a coward. I'm going to try and say the name of the larger work that it is is an excerpt from. Um, It's from the Dialogo della Bellezza delle Donne from Apere di Messer Agnolo Ferenzolo Florentino. (laughs) In it, Agnolo wrote of the ideal beauty, quote, the cheeks should be pale yet radiant, being features which possess a certain luminosity, like ivory, as well as whiteness. The cheeks, therefore, to be called beautiful, should have a shining pallor, while the breast should be merely white. Hair should be fine and blonde, now resembling gold, now honey, now shining as the bright rays of the sun, wavy, thick, and long. The forehead should be spacious. That is broad, high, pale, and serene. Its height is recommended by many to be the third part of the face. The height then should equal half the width. From a 21st century viewpoint, this is an incredibly narrow beauty standard. The face should be white, but not matte. It should be glowy. (laughs) The forehead should be about a third of the width of the entire face and so on. It does seem absurd that all women in Florence, even, in order to be considered an ideal beauty, should have possessed abundant golden hair or glowing ivory cheeks. Although remember, a matte color should be present on her chest, lest she be considered wanton. But this depiction did not exist without deeper and some might say more sinister intentions. Renaissance writers referred to men and women in terms of their very different, quote, temperature and complexion. These beauty ideals were used to uphold gender ideals. Women were understood in terms of their moral nature and were absolutely considered to be the more delicate sex. Of course. (laughs) Men, on the other hand, had different ideals centered around strength because they had, to the Florentines, fundamentally divergent natures to women. Thus, a ruddy complexion in a man would denote power, dynamism, and potency, while in a woman, the same darker complexion would suggest overexertion, depravity, and ill-breeding. In the Primavera, the only male figure, Mercury, is instantly distinguishable from his female companions by his more swarthy skin tone and his dark hair. Botticelli's female figures are typically passive as well in ways that would be expected in quattrocento depictions of women. Their gazes engage us, but do not directly challenge the viewer. Their ideal figures are intentionally easy on the eyes. However, Botticelli demonstrates in other works, The Return of Judith, for example, which I have included on the Instagram, that he knows how to paint what today we would call strong women. Judith was considered the prototype of female strength to the Florentines, since she alone had summoned up the courage to murder the tyrant Holofernes. This is a story from the Bible. Botticelli shows us in his painting, Judith with Abra, her maid. Both are striding ahead, Abra carrying Holofernes' severed head on her own, while Judith has an olive branch in her left hand as a symbol of peace and she carries a sword in her right hand. She also strides ahead with her right foot forward, a stance of power traditionally ascribed to male figures. You might notice in the Primavera that Flora has her left foot forward and Chloris is running forward with her right foot forward, so maybe there's some lesson there about taming women through marriage. I don't know. As one historian pointed out, Judith is imbued with, quote, a sense of female independence and perhaps even sexual autonomy. She is strikingly beautiful, yet also fully in control of her own femininity. Femininity. (laughs) I don't think that the same can be said of the figures in the Primavera or in the Birth of Venus, for example, but I believe it was a deliberate choice on Botticelli's part to depict his female figures passively where he chose to. This allows us to better meditate upon their symbolism and to accept them as a type rather than as an individual person. To show you what I mean by meditating on them as a type, let's look more closely at the central figure in the Primavera, who we have been calling Venus. We'll see what this looks like in practice. Prior to 1550, no attribution was given for this central figure's identity. Remember, the earliest inventory from 1499 only described the painting as, quote, a panel of wood attached over a latuccio, an- in which is painted nine figures of women and men, estimated at 100 lira. If I've done my historic conversions of currency correctly, which I am in no way confident that I have, I think that would be worth about 700 US dollars today, but it's it's really hard to- it, I- I can't do math. <laughs> Let's return to where I am more comfortable our painting, where, again, now we commonly accept the central figure as Venus due to her, quote, overt, albeit cool, eroticism and her diaphanous drapery, which does more to reveal than to conceal. But remember, it would have been really cool to hang around this painting with other learned Florentines to debate and discuss the meaning. And so there are other theories as to this female figure's identity, and these all stem from from her appearance within the larger scene. She cannot, it is important to note, be identified just on her own. There are no attributes given to her to identify her as Venus without looking to her other companions to complete the story. In short, if the central figure of the Primavera is Venus, then she's not a stereotypical one. The most basic reading of her persona is that she appears here in character as the goddess of marriage, fully clothed and with her hair covered, as married women were expected to do in public. But ancient Florentines would have understood that they could take the identification of this central figure a little bit further. In antiquity, both in Greek and Roman deities, you sometimes see these gods and goddesses given second names. They're called epithets, and these were adjectives attached to the god's name to connote different, um, what's the word I want? Almost like different concentrations. (laughs) So like you could study art history with a concentration in Renaissance art or a concentration in modern art. The same thing happened with the gods and goddesses. So Venus had so many different iterations that could be attached to her where she represented different things to different people over time. So for example, there was Venus Felix, the lucky Venus. Um, There was also the Venus Libertina, Venus the freed woman. I like this one from Wikipedia, Venus Verticordia, Venus the changer of hearts. So, in 1992, a historian named Charles Dempsey held that Botticelli's Venus in the primavera has adopted the guise of Venus Genatrix, a regenerative form of the goddess who existed in rustic antiquity as a life-giving force for nature. She was called Venus the Mother. And her concentration, if you will, was motherhood and domesticity. Looking back to the Florentines themselves, Neoplatonic philosopher Marsilio Ficino wrote in 1499 about the varying natures of Venus and of love itself. He wrote of the understanding of, quote, two Venuses accompanied by two loves. One is the celestial, the other earthly. The celestial Venus was born from Chalus without a mother. The earthly one was born from Jupiter and Dione. Dione, I'm sorry. Venus has two natures, one that is intelligence, which we have placed in the angelic mind. The other is the drive to procreate, attributed to the soul of the world. The first encloses within itself divine splendor, which is then diffused to the second Venus. This second Venus radiates sparks of the received splendor into the matter of the world. So in both these powers, there is love, which in the first is desire to contemplate beauty, and in the second is desire to generate it. Both kinds of love are honorable since they follow the divine image. Now, the Primavera Venus is not the only one of Botticelli's paintings to possess a central figure called Venus with such characteristically Florentine features. The woman at the center of the birth of Venus, again, I have posted this on the Instagram post for this week, she boasts the same flowing golden hair, although hers is uncovered, and she has that same characteristic high brow and impossibly elongated proportions. Many still view this and the Primavera as companion pieces, since they are Botticelli's largest mythological works. And if you look at the two side by side, there is a sort of visual progression from left to right. You can almost imagine the scene in The Birth of Venus happening just before the scene in The Primavera. It's as if Venus has stepped off of her scallop shell, been clothed in the cloak of flowers being presented to her, and has stepped into the lush garden in the primavera to preside over springtime. Even the young woman who holds a cloak out to the nude Venus is sometimes identified as one of the Graces, or as the Hora of Spring. She holds out a cloak covered in flowers, and it's easy to see the similarities between her and the figure of Flora in the primavera. Some scholars, therefore, call Venus in the birth of Venus the celestial Venus, who was born from the sky god and who emerged from the sea. The primavera Venus, then, would be more precisely the earthly or natural Venus, who receives her divinity from the grace of the celestial Venus and, through her beauty and fertility, quote, radiates sparks of the received splendor into the matter of the world. Isn't it just fascinating to see how people were explaining the nature of things? I just, this, this would have been a vibe to just live in Florence. I mean, not as a woman, obviously, but to live in Florence and just expound over the nature of Venus and have that be, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Different times, simpler times. (laughs) Bring this back pulling ourselves back to the primavera and looking again at that rather melancholy, austere springtime, this would be accounted for in the understanding of the uh, celestial versus the earthly Venus. There is abundance and splendor in the earthly Venus's orange grove that stems from her engendering of the idea to generate beauty. The trees in the birth of Venus are also orange trees, although notably they are not bearing fruit. So it's if we're looking at these two as companion pieces in a way, it's almost as though the uh, earthly Venus in the Primavera has gotten straight to work. She's in the midst of generating life and beauty around her. Botticelli's unclothed Venus in The Birth of Venus on her scallop shell allows the viewer to instead meditate on her divine beauty, not the surroundings that she is stepping into we are able to contemplate the perfection of the human body as an extension of divinity. There is, as I said, no fruit in her tableau because the love shown here will never come to fruition. This is the type of humanist view on love and human nature that would have just been emerging in Botticelli's Florence at the time that he was undertaking his career. All of that said, what if I told you that some people reject the idea that the Primavera is overseen by Venus at all? One historian, Jean Gillies, re-examined Botticelli's figure entirely and concluded that she is not Venus, but rather the moon goddess Isis, depicted as she was described by Lucius Apulius in his second century account of the Judgment of Paris, the Golden Ass. Gillies describes this work as, quote, an allegorical autobiography of Apuleius's spiritual awakening and initiation into the cult of Isis, an incident mirrored in many 15th century thinkers' own intellectual or spiritual ventures into the occult. In this context, she says that the Primavera would ultimately become a work that was meant to, quote, show young Lorenzo the benefits of a measured, judicious life guided and blessed by a divine intermediary whose power controls the revolution of the heavens. Jaylis bases her comparison of Botticelli's figure to Isis on her visual attributes. Isis is described in Apulius's text as wearing a golden veil adorned with a round disc. Botticelli did indeed paint his so-called Venus with a minuscule crescent moon atop her head. I have a detailed view on the Instagram of that. She also wears a medallion featuring a second crescent moon between her breasts. Jaylis accounts for the medallion's golden color as it would typically be silver by postulating that it is reflecting the sun's rays, which presumably lie outside the picture's limits. I'm not so sure about that one, but (laughs) explaining the significance of this, Gillies goes on, quote, iconographically, this indicates that the feminine moon reflects or incorporates the sun's masculine light. By extension, the central figure herself, the goddess of the moon, is imbued with the light of the, quote, masculine sun. She is nature, the universal mother, just as Apulius's Isis identified herself. Imbued with the sun's masculine light, she, figuratively speaking, has been impregnated by the male principle. Of course, this interpretation also rests on the idea that Botticelli deliberately depicted his central figure as pregnant, an assumption that I think is dubious at best. Flora, for instance, appears to be more heavily with child if one were to base their interpretation on this purely visual reading of the painting. Plus, almost all female figures painted during the 15th century share those same elongated, ill-proportioned physiques. The beauty standards of the day can account for some of these portrayals. Even a slight glance to the left within the Primavera revealed that the Three Graces also possess protruding stomachs and these arched backs, and Chloris' and uh, Flora's abdomens appear the most, I would say, distended and enlarged in comparison. Another scholar, Jonathan Klein, suggested in 2011 that the central figure was neither Venus nor Isis, but rather Persephone, the Greek goddess of springtime. He points to the changing seasons, integral to Persephone's story, as she returns to the world after a dark winter spent in the underworld with Hades. Still another scholar, Eugene Lane Spallin, has drawn connections between the central figure of Venus and typical depictions of the Virgin Mary. The primavera Venus stands before a grouping of branches, which silhouetted against the sky suggest a circle. The Virgin Mary is often shown standing or sitting before a circle, a symbol for eternity and perfection. As a motif, the circle was used nearly exclusively by religious artists at this point in time, meaning that if Botticelli intentionally included it, it was almost certainly meant to denote the presence of some Christian iconography. In 15th century Florence, viewers may indeed have associated the Primavera's central figure with a Madonna just as readily as they did with a Roman goddess. Her raised hand in benediction, her subtly blue and red garments, and her serene expression are the main suggestions that perhaps Botticelli's central figure was a manifestation of both Venus and Mary, who Eugene Lane Spalin claims were interchangeable to the Florentines. If nothing else, Botticelli certainly recognized the complexity of roles that can be ascribed to a female form, and he seems to be drawing upon many of them in his depiction of Venus. Given all of this, I kind of find it most probable then that the central figure embodies components of Isis's iconography, most notably the motif of the crescent moon, as well as others borrowed from that of the Virgin Mary, Persephone, and Venus. Such a presence of a fertile moon goddess, pregnant or not, might actually lend itself well to the interpretation of the Primavera as a wedding portrait. Isis, Venus, and the Virgin Mary could all be present to act as intercessors in the conception of Medici heirs. Of course, I also have to say I have barely scratched the surface in this episode of the analysis that has been done on the Primavera. So I urge you, if you are interested at all in maybe some other explanations or some deeper meanings, there are a ton. So please do go out and um, do a little bit of research on Google Scholar. Also, I don't know, I didn't know this until very recently, Um, JSTOR during the COVID pandemic has been offering people, I think it's like 100 free articles a month, so definitely check that out if you are interested in further reading. A lot of the um, scholars who I mentioned here have published on JSTOR, so be sure to let me know what you think of some of these interpretations, whether you agree with them or not, whether there is something that I missed or not. You can always reach out to me on the Instagram. That is at Art of History Podcast. If you would like to send a longer message, uh, you can email me at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. Uh, my Patreon is just like my all of my content mixed together. That is patreon.com slash fact. That is M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Over there, I do share um, early access recordings of these episodes as well as the script for each episode. So that gets uploaded a few days before the public episode is released. I also share occasional essays on the Royal Family over there as well as some bonus TikTok content. It's very incidental. Um, There is no rhyme or reason to it, but do check it out if you're interested in supporting just a little bit more. And of course, I do continue to make my royal content um, on Instagram and TikTok, again, at Mata of Fact. I hope to see you guys much sooner than uh, this last uh, break between episodes. I really, really want to get back on a regular schedule. It's just life. It's always life, isn't it? All right. Be excellent to each other, and I will see you in the next one. (laughs)